This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal question. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. Hope you're doing well this morning. I am doing right as rain, which I don't think it's doing right at this moment. Well, I think it will be today, but, uh, you know, we, at least people could be, uh, if it is raining, they can be listening to in legal terms. And we're really happy to welcome Ben Griffith today, uh, who is a leading expert in election law and voting rights. He has represented many municipalities. Uh, ben, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, Richard, thanks for having me on the show, and thank you, Liz, as well. Uh, I'm a 1975 graduate of the University Law School, and most of my practice for these 45 years has been in the area of federal and state civil litigation. Uh, beginning early in my practice, I began representing uh, a county government as uh, chief governmental counsel. That expanded to uh, other governmental defendants who I handled uh, vote dilution and redistricting cases for. The federal civil litigation involved working uh, a lot of times opposite the Justice Department Civil Rights Division in voting rights litigation. Much of this took place in the Fourth Circuit, that's the um, South Carolina and Maryland included, and the Eleventh Circuit included the city of Miami Beach, and the Fifth Circuit, which is uh, our home district here in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas, uh, and also in the U.S. Supreme Court. These are cases that have gone on uh, in many instances three, four, five, six years, but they're they're tough. They're political battles. And in my work with the American Bar Association, I ended up chairing the Standing Committee on Election Law. We drafted provisional voting, uh, election personnel training measures, steps to improve the federal election process. Many of these measures went on to Congress and were enacted. Uh, I chaired the 5,000-member ABA section of state and local government law. That was involved in many policy measures that related to improving the electoral process. Back here at home uh, with a fellow classmate, uh, Ben Piazza, we helped form the government law section of the Mississippi Bar. Uh, That led to uh, much more contact and communication and collaboration with other governmental attorneys in the state. I've been president of the National Association of County Civil Attorneys. And then more to the point on what we're going to talk about today, I've uh, been the editor of four editions of an ABA publication called America Votes challenges to modern election law and voting rights that's beginning in 2008 2012 2016 2020 you know that's every election year every presidential election year and it's been a hot topic some people refer to what we're in right now as a hot mess uh we've had we've had worse i think but i don't believe it's ever been as ex- as exaggerated and difficult as we find ourselves now in the middle of the COVID-19 uh, problem area. It's, it's, it's acute, it's unique, and it's something we're having to cope with day by day. Finally, I've, I've authored uh, a number of uh, chapters and publications dealing with preservation of the right to vote after disaster events. 
continuity of essential legal services in the wake of catastrophe. Uh, portions of the Homeland Security and Emergency Management publication where we analyzed election disruptions. What do you do when a hurricane strikes on election day, uh, literally? And how do you handle the postponement and rescheduling of elections? Uh, I've had over, I think, 110 CLE seminars and conferences both in this country and internationally. And on these, I've usually dealt with elections, anti-corruption, and governance. Most recently, Richard, we got three uh, ABA webinars on uh, voting rights. Uh, one took place in April, uh, one in uh, June, and one coming up July 21st on vote by mail. Uh, it's been a pleasure to work with the uh, Ole Miss School of Law as an adjunct professor, and uh, it's been a, a real challenge because we're in changing times. It's been it's been interesting, and as you mentioned, my, actually, my daughter was in living in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, when uh, their elections were disrupted by a hurricane that went through that area. And, uh, yeah, so a lot of people had to, to come up with Plan B, and it seems like that's what we're going to be doing this year. Now, you know, with the pandemic and with uh, CDC guidelines on social distancing, how do, how do we assure that voters have the right to vote? The key is to be very methodical and collaborative. By that, I mean federal, state, local, uh, regional governments have to speak to one another. They have to plan in advance. Uh, in these uh, portions of Homeland Security uh, uh, publications that I've taken part in, the key to every one of those, the successful key, is advanced planning, charting out how you're going to handle this if your primary uh, uh, polling places are destroyed, literally. Uh, when Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey, uh, you had five, six, seven hundred polling places destroyed out of a total of 3,500. That's a lot, uh, and that's the key. There is to make sure that the uh, flexibility is present, that your leadership is at every level of government, from president down to the local government level, with collaboration, communication. Uh, and the key there is don't gin up ad hoc, on the spot uh, solutions. That's usually a key to disaster. So you can adhere to the CDC guidelines, and that means massive planning and education of election personnel, and we've got some bad stories. Uh, we can talk about those in a bit. Uh, in Wisconsin, where uh, they virtually were compelled to go forward with face-to-face in-person voting instead of uh, a more massive vote-by-mail process. And uh, most recently, uh, week, a week and a half ago, the Georgia uh, primary election, it was uh, literally a meltdown, and it was because of lack of planning, lack of cohesive, coordinated communication. I think, let me give this one shout-out to our former Secretary of State, Delbert Hoseman. He has done one of the best jobs of any uh, Secretary of State during his time in office of managing and directing and providing guidance for the electoral process. So pass off to him. But yeah, and it's really it's so important. You mentioned Georgia. We're seeing it play out, and I know there, uh, there's some discussion about Kentucky now is is going to close a lot of sites, uh, which might affect especially uh, people of color. You know, so how do we how do we protect the important aspects of our legal system and voting in 2020? I mean, what, what uh, you mentioned coordination, and and you did you, you mentioned your article as well, continuity of essential legal services in the wake of catastrophe, which I think. You must have had a crystal ball for this year. Uh, fair elections yeah. in the judicial system. So what, what what other things can we be doing? Well, 
education is important. Uh, voter education and training of election personnel. Uh, many times we hear that the average age of our poll workers is 70. I don't believe that's quite right. I think that's somewhat of an exaggeration. But they're getting on up there. And when we had the uh, recent elections in uh, Wisconsin, Georgia, uh, and other states where they were fearful of manning the uh, polling places due to the uh, pandemic, you had a lot of these seasoned veterans not show up. They said, I'm, I'm afraid to appear. So it wasn't just voters who were impacted. It was the people running the election process. That speaks to the need for massive, immediate education training and standby um, backup procedures. And they can be done. They can be put in place. Uh, none of this can be done on the spot. Uh, there are ways to protect the voting rights of minorities, particularly in this type of, um, of, of pandemic. And those are, are processes that necessarily involve massive communication, not just with television, uh, not just online, but massive outreach efforts to get to the voters. There are get-out-the-vote uh, campaigns that have been highly successful. Uh, you use those same avenues of communication to reach those voters. Uh, backup communication, transportation, getting people to the polls on Election Day. Uh, this has been done, and I'll refer again to New Jersey. They have the problem of having their roads literally washed out and just many avenues leading from home to polling place were destroyed. So they had to have uh, alternate and substitute and backup processes in place. Uh, they did that. It, there were some kinks in it. Uh, it's never going to be perfect. But a lot of that focus on getting to the voters and getting the voters to the polls or getting the, uh, uh, the ballot materials to the voters so they could vote by absentee or remote voting uh, as an alternative. And that was done fairly successfully. You're never going to do it in a way that everybody will praise it. But uh, I think New Jersey, in their process, post-Sandy, uh, set an example for the rest of the country, as did Louisiana after Katrina. We'll talk about that later as well, Richard. Well, as by the number of protests that the United States has seen in this past month, hopefully a lot of these organizing uh communities, these groups, will designate and ask some of their individuals to be ambassadors and to sign up to be election workers, poll workers, and to help assist in transportation so that there's a wealth of individuals who can help out um, with elections, uh, given that uh, older Americans might feel less likely to help to be exposed during this coronavirus pandemic. We're going to continue our discussion of voting by mail or other options in just a bit. And how do you vote by mail? I'm doing little air quotes on that, by mail in Mississippi. I'll tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.
this is in legal terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at MPB. I'm sorry, at inlegalterms.com mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Now, if you know you will vote by absentee ballot to be mailed in, you can contact your circuit or municipal clerk's office anytime within 45 days of the election. More information is available at the website yallvote.sos.ms.gov. This morning, we're talking about voting during a pandemic. Our guest is attorney Ben Griffith, and we do have a phone call. Let's go to Aaron, who has called in from Oxford. Aaron, thanks so much for being part of In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Thanks for having me on uh, real quick here. I just had a comment about my experience uh, with mail-in ballot voting in the state of Washington. Uh, when I lived up there, and uh, it was my first time ever having the chance to do that, and it was uh, so easy of a process. They immediately um, registered you to vote as you registered for your state issue ID and uh, registered your vehicle. And when I got the ballot, I could research every single aspect of every single race, initiative, ordinance, uh, citywide, countywide, statewide, federal. Um, there was nothing I, I was left in the dark about because I had the opportunity to take my time to research everything and to understand everything fully and make it a truly educated uh, vote. A vote, and uh, it, just, it meant a lot to me in retrospect to, to feel like I really did everything I could uh, to vote knowledgeable. I just want to kind of share how, how how important that felt in the moment to people who might be wondering if that's the right way to go now. Well, thanks, Aaron. We appreciate you calling in. Uh, Mr. Griffith, uh, talk about the importance of not having to reinvent the wheel on yes. voting. Certainly. And I know Governor uh, Jay Inslee would be smiling broadly at those remarks. Uh, I think that is uh, indicative of how Washington has done it right. Uh, they've gotten people to see how simple the process really is. Uh, voting by mail is not new. It dates back to the Civil War. We had soldiers who were given the opportunity to vote from the battlefield. Uh, states had expanded since then over the years and years their absentee voting laws to accommodate voters who were away from home or sick on Election Day. Uh, many opponents to voting by mail, or VBM, uh, claim that it increases voter fraud, that it increases uh, criminal activity. Uh, these are false charges. It's not a nice way to put that. There's no factual basis to support those charges. They go back to charges of massive voter fraud that we heard around the time of the 2016 presidential election. Contrary to those claims, these are imagined. The truth is in-person voter fraud is very, very rare. It's down to the point zero 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 one percent of the total. And it's, it's so few in numbers, what we would call de minimis. It's not a significant number, and it's also something that the, the system is set up to catch and detect. 
voting by mail is simply mail voting. It accomplishes a number of objectives. It gives flexibility to voters who want or need to cast a ballot at a location other than their polling place. I've done it. Uh, when I passed age 65, I was actually eligible to vote absentee uh, in any election that I chose. But I, I choose to go to the polling place and vote. But there are times when I'll be out of town, out of state, uh, out of pocket, when it, it becomes very, very uh, central to my whole purpose of, of participating in the political process to have a chance to cast my vote. It's already used in several states. Many state legislatures or their secretary of state election divisions have been responding during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, they've come up with very pragmatic, logical measures to relax the requirements of absentee balloting. It's not dispensing with the technical requirements. It's just making it more available to voters who for health, aid, fear, or uh, concerns over contracting COVID-19 desire to use that method rather than risk exposure to the virus resulting from in-person voting. Texas right now uh, has just completed, uh, at least at the uh, appellate court level, a battle over whether to allow voting by mail. Uh, that case is actually working its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, that raises another issue of here we've got voting by mail in some states. It's already clear. Uh, over 30 states have it. Uh, if, they, if they don't have it broadly, it's at least for this coming presidential election and the primaries leading up to it. But those states that are undecided, and there are about 16 of them, uh, it's going to be a, a question in the voters' mind. What do I do? How can I function? How can I actually cast an absentee ballot uh, if I don't have one of the disabilities or the age qualifications that make me eligible to do it? It's a difficult process, but one that we need to depoliticize, and that in itself is going to be a chore. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, Mr. Griffith, I have a question. I know one of the requirements for voting absentee is to think you may be away from your polling place on Election Day. Could you think you were going to be away from your polling place and get the absentee ballot, but then, oops, your plans changed and you really weren't, but you have an absentee ballot to send in? Do they ever challenge anyone's ability to vote absentee in your experience? Yes, there are times when an absentee ballot application can be challenged legitimately. If it were a falsified statement that I'll be in uh, uh, Texas or Oklahoma on Election Day, I will not be in Mississippi, and that was patently false. I had no plans, no travel or plans at all. I had uh, no flight arrangements, nothing that indicated objectively that I was planning to actually be out of state, and I simply fabricated it. Uh, that would, number one, it'd be a crime. Uh, number two, if detected and if uh, revealed, it would be something that would uh, uh, have very dire consequences for the voter. And in short, it's not worth it to lie about the uh, eligibility for absentee voting. Although the opponents to voting by mail will tell you anyone who wants to vote by mail has got to be committing a fraud in the process. That is uh, that is not true. That is exaggeration. And it's the same type of exaggeration that took place when we got into the uh, whole debate over voter ID. you got to have it because voter fraud is rampant. Well, no, it's not. And uh, the more people can understand that and see the true facts are not as they've been hyped uh, the better our process would be. That's, a, that's such an important statement, and I think that you know, the, the, having the facts is so essential now. 
And, you know, when we talk about access to, uh, to voting by mail, it seems to me, especially when we're trying to social distance, uh, that, that it would protect poll workers and it would protect uh, people who voting if we had broader uh, voting by mail. Yes. And a lot of times those reasons are legitimate. Uh, if we said I, I need to vote by mail, as in Texas, many of the people that were asking for it said, I may not have a disability in the sense of having uh, multiple sclerosis or a, a current medical condition that hospitalizes me, but I am fearful that I have no immunity to this COVID-19 virus. And I am fearful genuinely, honestly, that if I go face-to-face with five, six, seven, eight hundred voters on Election Day, I'm going to be exposed. Uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in the Texas Democratic Party case uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago said that's not enough to qualify as a disability. Other states have gone a, a different way in interpreting their law, and that's real important. Elections are mostly a matter committed to the uh, state and local governments. That's states, counties, municipalities. It's generally not a process controlled by the federal government. So it's, it's a very rare situation to see in-person voter fraud. It's even more rare to see an absentee ballot application that is patently false and fraudulent. But the hype that we're seeing, Richard, is, is alarming because it's making people feel like, well, if I even ask for an absentee ballot, people will think I'm doing something wrong. Absolutely not. It's within your right to do that. And that right needs to be expanded in the face of the pandemic. Well, you know, along with uh, with. The, the whole idea of uh, voting by mail, some states recognize that people have to work uh, and may not be able to get to the polls, and, and therefore they allow early voting, uh, even early in-person voting if possible. Um, is that, does, do we allow that in Mississippi? Yeah. In Mississippi, we do not have what is called early voting or EV. It would be wonderful if we did. That takes into account changes in schedule, work demands where someone is uh, has a 24-7 type job where they, it's a real burden to actually get out on Election Day and get to the polling place. Early voting is a way in which uh, you can actually take care of your voter uh your exercise of the right to vote, you can be educated and familiarized with the electoral process, and you can actually get out uh, before the election is held. Generally, elections in, in our primaries and our general each year are held on a Tuesday. Early voting would give you, as a voter, uh, time to get to uh, the get your vote in. If you're unable to get time off from work, if you have family obligations, some other legitimate reason uh, that makes it uh, essential for you to seek uh, an early vote, an opportunity to vote before the official election day. Many, many states have done it. Uh, this recent election day meltdown in Georgia during its June 29 primary may be a sign of the magnitude of growing problems. When you say uh, limited early voting, not uh, cut back on it or you reduce it, you pile in the people who are coming into the voting place on election day. You create greater crowds. Uh, it means everyone is forced to vote on election day, which can lead to extremely long lines, which in itself can suppress the vote. It can also lead to the type of problems that we had in Wisconsin uh, in early April. When right on the eve of that uh, primary election, the U.S. Supreme Court said we're not going to uh, allow a change in the voting procedure, and uh, that knocked out the ability of many people to vote by mail. Too late in the process, you had tremendous lines. Uh, hundreds of thousands of voters came in and actually voted. It, it backfired on the opponents 
of uh, of voting by mail and uh, early voting because the turnout was so large that it assured the election of the uh, democratically supported candidate for their state Supreme Court. Uh, The lesson there is be careful what you pray for. We have quite a few calls on the line. This is a very exciting topic and uh, applicable to everyone. Let's go to Greg, who has called in from Columbus. Greg, thanks for being part of In Legal Terms today. Go ahead. Hey, hello, ma'am. Hello, sir. I'd just like to make a few comments about uh, vote by mail. There's a huge difference between how it's being carried out in certain places versus requesting an absentee ballot. If I request an absentee ballot, I'm a registered voter. I have an address, and it gets sent to me. As they're doing vote by mail, we have seen literally on the news, the network news, where we see hundreds of envelopes at apartment complexes because they just mass everyone who's got a name on the registration. They're all mass mailed an application. I'm sorry, a a voting ballot. In Pittsburgh, uh, folks had to take the uh, county board of elections to court so that, so that, uh, are you still there? Yes, we're listening. Oh, so that uh, they would basically remove up to 20,000 voters who no longer existed. They had folks that are on the voting rolls that were over, I forget, like 10% of the people around over like 105 years old. They literally do not exist. So when you say you're going to vote by mail and basically everybody in the state of Mississippi or any of our states, and you just mass mail out uh, ballots to everyone, you can be guaranteed there are going to be literally thousands of people who have moved. They didn't take their names off the rolls. There are people that have died. You look at Atlanta, where Stacey Abrams said there was voter suppression. Hey, Mississippi, wake up. Go out and register today. No one is suppressing your vote. And as far as an identification goes, I have to have a smart ID to board an airplane coming this fall. And if I don't, I cannot fly on an airplane. So if people, that's not uh, racism, apparently, or any type of uh, airline transportation suppression. And so if we have to have a smart ID, then that should smart ID should also be available for everyone. And I'm all for Mississippi paying for it. And if you need a ride to go to the county courthouse with your smart ID, then super. I have a whole lot of other stuff, but I just wanted to make those points. And thank you for letting me uh, state that. Well, Greg, we're so glad that you were listening and you called in. Uh, Ben Griffith, our guest today on election and voting rights. Uh, What do you have to to say about some of the points that Greg brought up? Those were valid points. I think what you've got to look at is are you having voter purges? In other words, do you clean up your voter registration rolls in a timely way so that you don't have a lot of deadwood on them? Uh, I was actually on a a party executive committee uh, several decades ago. I'm giving away my age now in which we had to deal with purging voters that had long since left and were no longer alive, weren't even present. Uh, And those took place, and that assured as current as we could be that we would have a a fairly accurate voter registration list. There's also a cross-check process. Uh, You don't just send in an absentee ballot or a, a mail vote and say, here I am. We are uh, so glad that we're having this election law, these voting rights discussion today. Um, By the way, we did do a show on the smart ID, and I think they have now pushed that back a year. So I believe it's not going to be required until 2021 because of the pandemic. 
We are talking with guest Ben Griffith about election laws and voting rights and what's that going to look like during the pandemic. Did you know that today is Election Day in Mississippi? We're going to tell you more next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert's host. I'm Liz Gill. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. There's so many different podcasting platforms. If you have Apple device, you've already got one on your smart device. I have a podcast addict on my Android. I downloaded it to my phone. I touched the plus. That takes me to a page to search for podcasts. I typed in in legal terms in the search area. It brings up our show and you can touch the subscribe and then you're notified when any new episodes are loaded up. This morning we're talking about voting. What is that going to look like during this pandemic? Our guest is attorney Ben Griffith. And we want to remind folks that there's a special election today for the Mississippi House of Representatives District 88. It was called for April 21st, but then on April 3rd, Tate Reeves postponed the special election to June 23rd amid concerns about the coronavirus pandemic. I believe this is the area uh, north of Hattiesburg, almost surrounding, but not including Laurel. The seat became available when Ramona Blackridge Blackledge resigned on January 31st. Um, Mr. Griffith, we were talking about uh, commenting on uh, caller Greg was talking about some of the um, padded voter rolls and extra uh, ballots that might be mailed and just stocked up at apartment buildings. Uh, tell us a little bit more on your thoughts on that. Yeah, th- those were good points that Greg made. Voter purges or purging or cleaning up of voter registration rolls take place constantly in Mississippi. We're pretty well up to date in all 82 of our counties through our county registrar's offices. This is a mandate that they keep all the deadwood, clean it out uh, as much as possible. Those who have passed away or by cross-check can be determined uh, to have moved out of the state or moved to another location. Also, when you send in an absentee ballot, your application for absentee ballot status is going to be checked. When your absentee ballot comes in, they're going to make sure your signature matches up with what they've got on the permanent voter registration roll. It's not just, uh, you know, i got eight applications, I'm going to send in eight votes. Uh, number one, you're going to be violating some criminal laws when you do that. Uh, I don't want to see you in Parchment or Atlanta uh, in uh, you know, top security anytime soon, so don't do that. Secondly, when you get into voter purges, those give you at least some incidental assurance that you're trying to keep it as current as you can. And when you send that absentee ballot, 
completed process in, you're going to be cross-checked. And they're, we're getting better and better at having an interstate method of making sure that if this is a voter that is exactly the same voter as someone out in Colorado and they voted in two different jurisdictions, uh, the greater likelihood is going to be that you can catch that. That's what voter um, uh, canvassing and election canvassing is all about. It takes a lot of time. And now with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, facing uh, the upcoming presidential election, there's going to be a massive number of vote-by-mail applications and uh, absentee ballots to be counted. Sometimes, uh, in typical examples, you'll have where 60,000 absentee ballots have come in in an earlier year. Uh, this year, they're up to 900,000 to a million. Uh, you're talking about a tremendous burden on the local level, but it's one that they're going to have to be up to. They're going to have to be uh, fit for it, trained, ready, and have the resources uh, to devote to it. That's going to take a lot of planning and a lot of work. Not to mention the burden on the U.S. Postal Service. We've got John, Craig, Becky, and Jerry who are waiting to speak with us. So we're going to go first to John in Osaka. Thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. John, we need you to turn off your radio and just listen to the show through your phone. That way you'll be able to hear when we call on you. Uh, John from Osaka, please go ahead. Uh, yes, ma'am. How are y'all doing today? Great. Thanks for hey, calling. Uh, uh, actually, two questions. All right. First of all, I want to verify something. My father is 71 years old. He has COPD. He's on oxygen. He does not need to go out to a polling location with this stuff going on. All right. So he contacts the his county's uh, registrar? Correct. Correct? Okay. Now, Correct. second question. Circuit clerk's office, right. Okay. Now, second question. All right. I live in Osaka, very small town. I'm very concerned about the fact that my polling location may not even be open. Yeah. Your best bet on that is to, you can call. You don't have to walk into the circuit clerk's office. You can call them and tell them two things. You want to make sure your dad has an absolutely valid application mailed to his residence address. They will mail okay. it to him with clear instructions. It, it looks a little complex when you do it the first time, but it's not really. For your own sake, uh, if your polling place is going to be closed on Election Day, they're going to have or should have fairly quickly that information for you so that they can give it to you on the spot. Uh, if you, your county, what, what county are you in, by the way? Uh, Pike. Pike, great. Down, down in Macomb. Uh, if you have, say, 55 polling places, I don't know how many there are exactly, but... 30 of those have been closed uh, due to lack of staffing or lack of resources. They're going to have to have an alternative for you, and you'll have to be given specific information on where your polling place will be. Normally, that's not done on the spur of the moment. Normally, they'll have that kind of information well in advance, but your best bet is to do exactly that. Call the circuit clerk's office, and I'm calling to get information on the polling place. That is my usual polling place. Is it going to be open or not on Election Day? And they can provide that to you telephonically. Okay, because um, I've been trying to call the circuit clerk here uh, in Pike County for the last couple of weeks, and I can't ever get anybody to answer. Wow. Do they have anything <laughs> online, any kind of a, uh, email address that you can get? Um, I'm not positive. Yeah. Uh, I, can, uh, I can Google that, I guess. Yeah, be persistent. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you're running into that kind of a problem, but right down there in Macomb, you know, you've got uh, Pike County Courthouse. Uh, circuit clerk's office is, is actually it's in Magnolia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, actually in Magnolia. 
Okay. Keep keep trying as hard as you can to to get through to them. I know it's frustrating. We've had people out of state that were trying to call their local registrars, and they said they called for two weeks, three weeks in a row. I know it's frustrating. We're, we're dealing with fine times. Short of you going down there personally yourself, I would keep trying to do it by telephone. Okay. All right. And then uh, just one last comment on your previous caller there. Uh, talking about the voter fraud and everything, uh, I am a big proponent of using the same technologies that's used for driver's license and put the photo on the voter ID card. Yeah, on your actual registration. Right. All right. That should not be a, yeah, you should not be a problem. Thank you, John. We appreciate you participating with us. Next, we're going to go to Biloxi and speak with Craig. Craig, thank you for being part of In Legal Terms today. Go ahead. Okay, good morning. Uh, If a large enough group of people were not able to vote, uh, is there any way to get the results of the vote invalidated or tossed out? Yeah, a lot of times in an election contest, if you could prove that there was actual uh, fraud or uh, uh, improper conduct by officials and that people were physically or in some other way wrongfully kept away from the uh, polls, that they were through wrongful conduct, uh, had their voting rights interfered with, you could even be dealing with a federal crime. Uh, this is where you would actually bring in the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, the FBI, uh, the highest levels of federal government to investigate. If it's strictly a state election, not a federal election, you go the same route through the Secretary of State's office and the Attorney General. They have staff devoted to that. We used to call them uh, uh, the hot spots. I mean, you know, they're the ones you could go to and they could get you uh, staff available to help and advise on election day. Now we've, we've also got many attorneys who have become uh, advisors or persons who can be returned to on election day if you've got legal issues about, well, they're, they're not allowing me to vote or they say I'm not on the voter registration list or they say I'm in the wrong precinct. You should at least be allowed in any event to vote with a provisional ballot or an affidavit ballot. But if you've been prevented from doing that and you wrongful conduct has led to that, you're looking at an election contest that could actually, the percentage of votes is significant enough it could invalidate or void the entire election for that for that office. Okay, and there's no there's no way to... Uh, hello? Yeah, we're listening, Craig. Okay, okay. I, I heard a click. I thought it was hung up. Uh, is no. there no way to get a late vote in? Like, like it wouldn't count. Like, like, like the next day if you tried to yeah, get in there. Right, right. There's not a provision for that. That was the problem we ran into in the Wisconsin voters. Many of them were saying we're trying like crazy to get our ballot applications in. Uh, for voting by mail by election day and no later. They wanted to extend that to uh, uh, absentee ballots that were actually postmarked and came in after the election in the court. The U.S. Supreme Court actually said it would allow those ballots uh, that came in up to seven days after the election to be included in the count. That was phenomenal. So there's there's hope. But uh, in Mississippi, I think that if you have uh, a postmarked absentee ballot application, postmarked the day after the election, you're out of luck. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go back to the radio. Thank you, Craig. We appreciate you calling in. Would you like more voting information? I'll tell you where you can get some next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. 
Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show. In Legal Terms dot mpbonline.org it's also available on the mpb public media app as are all our local shows i'm liz gill i'm here with professor richard gershon from the university of mississippi school of law you still there professor gershon i am liz and i'm really <laughs> I, this is i'm learning so much it's great to have ben griffith on i'm glad we have so many calls and let's get to them on february 25th 2020 on our podcast we had the new secretary of state michael watson and he also talked about primary voting, the census. Don't forget about the census, folks, and the DMV. Today, we are talking with our guest, Ben Griffith, about election law and voting rights. We've got uh, a number of calls to try to get to. Let's go to Becky in Meridian. Becky, thank you so much for calling in to In Legal Terms today. Go ahead. Sure. Thanks for my call. Uh, I wanted uh, Mr. Griffith to talk about House Bill 1521 that's currently in the Mississippi State Legislature and the possibility of allowing anyone who's concerned about COVID-19 to vote absentee and also our current Secretary of State pushing this decision down to the local circuit clerk level. I can address that. That legislation is pending now, and our legislature is is uh, uh, active and could consider that. You've got mm-hmm. 34 states that allow voters to cast absentee ballots by mail without providing any reason at all. Uh, in Mississippi, we, we have the state one of six or seven reasons, and there are 16 other states that don't let you just have an unexcused absentee ballot. You've got to state a ground or a reason for it. This would temporarily, I don't believe this uh, House Bill 1521 is meant to be permanent, but it will temporarily, during the COVID-19 pandemic, provide for expanded access to absentee balloting uh, to those that are genuinely concerned about uh, threats to their health and uh, concerned over potential uh, exposure and contraction of the virus. Correct. and But the sec- current Secretary of State is going to, sounds like he wants to leave the policing of who actually meets the qualifications of being truly concerned about COVID-19. He's pushing that down to the circuit clerk level. Yeah. Um, A more uniform, uh, easily administered way to do it would be top down. Make it a state law and make it statewide applicable. Uh, When you push it down to the circuit clerks, uh, you're going to get 82 different answers. That's that's the concern I would have. So I agree with your concern on that. I would much rather it be a uniform uh, statewide law that applies to every uh, voter registrar in every uh, county in the state in an even-handed, uniform manner. Right. And and I also think that the voters deserve to know um, about the state of emergency and, you know, 
what conditions uh, qualify us to be under a state of emergency? Because even though, you know, the president of the United States has said that states can open up who've had at least 14 days of declining numbers, we haven't had 14 consecutive days of declining numbers at all in Mississippi, and yet we're opening up. Yeah, it's, it's scary. And the biggest concern I've got, I have a daughter that lives in New York, and uh, she's down here with us in Mississippi. If that doesn't tell you volumes right there, uh, I feel that she's safer with us. But the concern I've got is when you don't let voters know what are the eligible and proper grounds for getting an absentee ballot, what are the grounds that would make it necessary for you to say, I don't want to physically come to the polling place, I'd rather vote in an alternative method, Spell out what it takes to qualify for that. Spell it out unambiguously. Uh, if it's uh, anyone who is fearful of contracting the virus during the pandemic, say so. Make it clear, but don't leave it up to individual registrars to decide that on the basis of uh, just an ad hoc decision each time. That, that could lead to pandemonium. Now, I share your concern. I think that would be a very difficult uh, process leading to a lot of potentially conflicting decisions on the county level. Thank you, Becky. We appreciate you calling in today. And, you know, and, and this is so, it's so great. I know one caller was uh, talking about voter suppression. Uh, what what would be voter suppression and, and how would someone protect themselves from from that? Would they go to a lawyer? Would, would someone like you handle that case? Yeah. Voter suppression, Richard, is any effort that prevents eligible voters from registering the vote or prevents them from voting. It's got a broad range. Let me, let me list the possibilities. Uh, in some states, voter ID laws, while many of us feel that, hey, that's just like my driver's license, but if a voter ID law is rigid, restrictive, exacting, and very difficult to comply with, particularly if you're a minority, it can be a form of voter suppression. Purging the voter rolls, as good as we want our voter rolls to be current and up-to-date, purging uh, can actually become a, a source of uh, voter suppression. This happened uh, when the former Kansas Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, uh, developed his cross-check uh, process of checking voters interstate, and they found that for every legitimate match cross-check found, it produced 200 false positives. In other words, if it found, oh, we picked up somebody that's registered twice, they found there were 200 errors in that process. This resulted in voters actually showing up to vote only to find they had been purged. So purging it was administered in too rigid and, and uh, what I call a uh, zealous way. It can actually have a suppressive effect. You can limit early voting. Uh, put place limitations on early voting so that it doesn't carry out its salutary purpose of giving voters a time to vote when they uh, don't have time to get off from work or have family obligations. Uh, and then gerrymandering. We'll have a talk about that. That's a topic in itself. Ben, we need a whole other hour. We'll need to invite you back to discuss this. You know, maybe things will look a little different in October. Thank you so much, Attorney Ben Griffith, for talking with us about election laws and voting rights. Thanks for coming on. That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. Our call screener today was Java Chapman, and Jay White has been our board engineer. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We hope you join us next Tuesday for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.